Hello again, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, episode 31. This is Jay, and I'm here with Zhao, as usual. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, Jay. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And we have another interesting one. It's one of those where they did what? Episodes yeah. that we keep getting into. Yeah. I, I kind of um, feel like there's going to be a lot of people just face palming multiple times throughout <laughs> this episode. And then, like, if we could just get a, like, like don't record it, but it's just like the, the collective sounds of face palming yeah. all over the world. <laughs> um, probably going to happen. But then again, I, I hope it's not to the point where we're kind of numb to these things. And um, yeah, I hope that never happens. Yeah, I know this is a meme at this point, but we should get that uh, Picard face palming statue. That uh, that YouTubers seem to have on their desks all the time, it definitely applies here. Um, and yeah, the, this is a throwback to one that we did last year around the about the University of Minnesota researchers that really messed up their security research. And in this one, we see lots of that yet again. Yeah, you know, so, if I remember correctly, that wasn't even in the podcast. That was like right before the podcast started i think that was like a separate like one shot video really? that we did if i remember correctly yeah because um but, yeah awesome. it was just weird <laughs> that whole so the university <laughs> yeah. thing it was all about um trying to poison a linux module and see if it can get yeah. through the checks and balances yep. and um it was done by university which you would think would know better but then here we have um somebody who and says how i hacked ctx <laughs> In PH pass modules, and I'm like, he, you did what? <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> right from the top, if your proof of concept or your security demo or you making a point affects 10 million people like you claim to, that's malicious in itself. You don't need to do anything else. You're poisoning stuff on 10 million users' computers or 10 million company computers or whatever. That's already a problem, and I believe that's already enough to get some criminal charges going yeah. around. I was just about to say that. It's got to be illegal. I, I know it is. The minute that, I mean, we, we had at one time before the podcast started, I, I this there was a story where this, I forgot which manufacturer printer it was, but it was being affected by malware and used in a botnet. And they were, they were just an army of printers, and the manufacturer wanted get this, wanted nothing to do with releasing a firmware update to fix it. So then a person decided to patch the firmware himself to fix it and then release it as a worm that looks for those printers and fixes, fixes them so that they can't be, you know, taken over. So he's yeah. technically committing a crime. <laughs> you can't yeah. do these things, but it they make for great stories. But just we don't want any of our listeners to be the person that we're talking about in any episode. Though. Yeah, absolutely. But here, at yeah. the very least, you're wasting CPU cycles for 10 million users. By his own admission, he himself claims that it's 10 million. I assume that's the number of downloads or something like that that you got on the libraries that you poisoned. But man, that's a lot. And to your lot. point right there about the, the firmware, just imagine how long it's going to take for those 10 million people or 10 million users or whatever to actually update the version uh, moving forward to a clean version. We'll get into the actual details and what versions they are. But imagine you pull a bad version someone tampered with and you have it in your project, you include it, you release your project, you ship your product, it gets out there, OK? How long is it going to take for you to produce a new version with a clean library and distribute it to everybody else who already used it before? Now, consider that it got pulled into the firmware for an IoT device somewhere. And that, that device is never going to see an update in its lifetime. It's right. going to sit there forever, basically. So the, the amount of damage that you can do with a simple stunt like this, it's incredible. And come on, <laughs> he did what? Yeah, you know, this podcast is never going to run out of things to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, it's never been more clear. Yeah. So let's get into the actual story and, and what yeah, the yeah, yeah. happened here. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this guy actually decided to see if it was possible to take over basically libraries, if he could do some supply chain attacks. And he tried to find vulnerabilities on the way that packages are maintained and the way that code is stored in GitHub and how it then gets automatically pulled to create the libraries and that are being distributed. 
So he tried to hack both CTX and PHPass, which I'm struggling to read this PHPass. Um, <laughs> but we went over that before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the way that he went about this was that he started looking at repositories for, for example, for CTX, which is a Python library. Um, and I'll get into the details of what CTX actually is and what it does in a minute. But he looked at uh, repositories for Python libraries. He tried to look at the ones with the most downloads. And then he started looking for the ones whose maintainers were either um, no longer existing on GitHub or that had emails for expired domains, which is the case for the CTX one. So he found CTX, he looked at the email, he checked the domain that the email belonged to didn't exist. So what did he do? Like the good hacker that he is, he registered the domain himself, he creates the account on the system, he asks for a password recovery from GitHub. And everything works perfectly fine everywhere. And he gets the password recovery. He recovers the account on GitHub. And now he has access to the code repository. Wow. With me so far? OK. I am with you. I am absolutely with you. <laughs> this is really nice. Yeah. So what does he do? The, the version at the time of the, right before the, he decided to change it was 0.1.2. So what he does with access to the repository, he changes the code. He adds some code created by himself to collect uh, authorization tokens from Amazon and credentials and everything else that he could get his hands on and would upload it to a server on, under his control. And he packaged version 0.2. Because the package number is higher, uh, tools like pip, the, the Python package manager, would pick it up as an update and would deploy it on your system if you look for updates. So you as a user would be doing everything that you should be doing and you would get a malicious package deployed to your system. And wow. all up to this point, everything worked exactly as intended. Okay, so he didn't brute force anything. He didn't look for vulnerabilities anywhere other than GitHub's process. Um, or not even GitHub's process, because GitHub tried to send the email, the recovery email, to the address that was on file for that user. And everything worked exactly fine. But the, the attack vector here, it's pretty interesting. I don't recall it being done like this before. Um, so yeah, he just looked at the registry, found the emails that were no longer on valid domains, and went after those. And yeah, yeah so that's if really a nasty. proper version ever comes out, a bug fix release, for example, of zero point one point three, I mean zero point two was already released by him. So it's almost like if if there's going to be updates at any point, then. Um, now the de the developer, you know, if they wanted, because I understand there was an issue where, you know, there was a domain that expired. So you could argue if there's mm -hmm. not the activity, but if there was, then if you're looking for the latest version, you're going to get his, even yeah, yeah, though yeah. the proper one could have went to zero point one point four. The proper one now would have to be higher than zero point two right. to be pulled by the the update tools. Um, exactly. But anyway, a stunt like this, because it got the publicity that this one got, come on, this made the rounds on security Twitter. Everybody was talking about this. Um, nobody else is ever going to trust this library. Nobody else is ever going to use this. I looked at some stats before joining this. So th this library had, in the previous 30 days, it had almost 30k pools. Okay. But in oh. the last seven, it only had 200. He effectively killed the project with this stunt. Nobody is ever going to rely on this library. No. Uh, that's a side effect of pulling a stunt like this. Now, what is actually CTX? So CTX is a way for you to basically access arrays by name rather than by index. So you could say that column one or index zero would be called name and column two would be called address. And then you would be able to reference the array through those names rather than through index. It facilitates your work when you're dealing with uh, data that you're loading from CSVs, for example. And there are other libraries that do something similar. But still, this was widely used, and that's why he attacked it, basically. But it's not that critical. This, the thing here is that from now on, nobody's going to rely on this one. But the projects that have it referenced will be pulling the bad, the bad version anyway. Now, he claims he removed it and removed that code and all of that, and he, that, and he didn't use the data and all of that. But who's going to believe him? There's right. no way it, to verify. 
There, there is, and, and and there's there's so much more to this. Like like to simplify at the at that level is not doing a full justice to how this this works. I mean, I don't want to get into hard drive storage, but you know, spinning rust hard drives, SSDs, they both do the same thing, but they don't do it the same way. They don't store data the same way. They're not even really the same. Their goal is the same. That's it. With wear leveling on SSDs, if it touched an SSD, even if you wipe it. You can't wipe an SSD the same uh, when it comes to your scrubbing data. There could be something there. And as we were kind of talking about off camera, like, okay, so if you deleted it and there's no way to recover it, that's great. As long as there wasn't a man in the middle that was downloading it from him as it was going down the wire. We don't know. I mean, that I hope that doesn't happen, right? But it could. And we could be coming back here and saying, you know what? That data that he didn't save, this other yeah. individual sure did. And that would be yeah. a very bad day. Or he used a leaky bucket from Amazon, like everybody does, and somebody else right. took the data from him. Uh, but again, claiming that you didn't use the data, it doesn't matter. It's moot. It's a moot point. Nobody can verify that if it's true or not. And yeah. because you collected Amazon authentication tokens, that you collected credentials, and that you collected that type of data by itself. <laughs> And, and this is not even going into the details of the hack. Just collecting that personally identifiable information makes you be in violation of GDPR, okay? Right. That's immediate, okay? You didn't ask for permission from the users to collect that data, and you did, okay? It doesn't matter if you deleted it now or not, or if you're not using it for anything else. The simple fact that you collect the data, it's a violation of that. He immediately broke right. the law through the hack, but the different ways in which this can be approached legally are not just the, the hack itself. It's the data collection, it's the data storage, it's whatever else. This guy can be in serious trouble. And I honestly don't believe he won't be. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I am not a lawyer. I do not study the legal industry at all. But as far as the United States is concerned, I'm fairly sure that this violates uh, federal wiretapping law. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And he admits it himself, which is even, come on. Yeah, so it's just okay. like, I'm reading through the article, you know, and I'm skimming through it as we're talking as well. And I'm just like, this is, I'm, I'm literally looking at a legal admission of guilt Absolutely. right now. And on Absolutely. my screen right now is a legal admission of guilt on this yeah. website. Other than that, and again, he admits to it himself, which is even dumber. He claims that he collected some of the data. He scraped some data from crates.io, which is a service that uh, lets you check packages for Rust. He didn't, doesn't mention actually taking over any Rust package, but he looked at them and he scraped the data from crates.io. On one of the notes that he added to the document, he mentions that he crashed the service while scraping it. Again, another crime. You crashed the publicly available service without permission, and you made it unavailable to other users. That's another violation, another breach of the law right there. And this just keeps yeah. getting <laughs> worse and I and don't worse. even feel like he can benefit from the really horrible trend where, you know, someone commits a really horrible crime with hacking. Next thing you know, some company comes along and bails them out of jail and pays everything and hires them. Um, you know, this isn't like th that different, in my opinion, than, you know, phishing. I mean, it it is different, but at the same time, he's just using something that expired to redirect a um, an account recovery email. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay anybody's skill level here, but I don't really feel like that's a hard thing to do for anyone. The part that's outside the... Yeah, the part that's outside the box thinking here is that he tried the the recovery process to take over the account. Usually it doesn't happen like that. You either try to use uh, social engineering to get the credentials from someone, or you try to brute force the password or guess the password or something like that. He went a different way. He actually took over um, a secondary account to get the data for, to attack GitHub's repository. Um, that is slightly different, but the process itself, uh, it's just scraping data from publicly available sources and looking for the information that you wanted. And okay, uh, CTX was one. Let's look at PH pass. And again, mm -hmm. I'm struggling to read it like that. Um, okay, so PH 
pass provides you with functionality around password hashing, validation, storage, the, the works. If you have a login field in your application, this is something that will make your life easier. I think I might have used this. I haven't done much development in that, but I'm pretty sure at one point in my career, I did actually come across that with a project I was working on. So I agree, it must be pretty popular. He claims it had 2.5 million installations, so yeah, it's pretty popular, yep. <laughs> um, if the claim is true, obviously. Okay, so here he did something different. He looked at uh, the packages that were listed on packages.org, which is another public repository for package information, and he cross-checked the emails with GitHub profiles. Where the email didn't match uh, an existing account, he would create himself the account on GitHub. So, for example, somebody had an account with that email and then closed the account so that it didn't exist anymore. The profile was, uh, was deleted. He then came in and created the account and for all purposes and intents, on the, on the build pipeline, they would still be referring to the same address. And in GitHub, you have github.com slash your username slash your repository. So if you can take over the, repo the username part, it's just a matter of creating a repository with the same name, which in itself, it's something that shouldn't be permitted. The GitHub does not let you create a repository if that URL will match a deleted repository. Um, if he takes over the account and tries to create the repo with the same name, uh, GitHub won't let him. And he came across this problem, but he worked around it. And he also says exactly how he did it. He claimed that, okay, if I can't create it with this username, I'll just create a random username, create a repository with that name so that the URL is different, and then change the username to what the one I want. And that works. Of course it does. Of course it does, right? He claims to file the bug report with GitHub that was closed as duplicate, but uh, yeah, from his own admission so far, it hasn't been fixed yet. So we're not saying anybody should try this, but apparently this still works. And there's so many of these that, you know, I can think of one and nobody used this, by the way, I can think of one off the top of my head. Like I had, um, this was years ago. I'm going to hope this is fixed by now, but um, I had a client when I was back when I was doing computer repair come to me and um, they lost their Yahoo email. They haven't logged in in a, in a long time, right? So um, long story made short, that username they had, the email address they had went to someone else because at that point I read in the news that what Yahoo was doing is that if someone's account expired, you know, after they didn't log in for a certain amount of time, they would make that username available again, which means someone could sign up a new account with that username, and then any email that might be trying to come into that account will now will do that because they've just set that set up that account. And immediately, I was thinking even back then, like, well, that's horrible because if someone knows a an email address is linked to a specific service online and it came up to be available, they could reinstate that themselves and then get all their data. I feel like um, there's probably many things like this and i feel like he's trying to prove a point in the worst yeah. way without Absolutely. much of a point and he's causing damage just like you said in the beginning yeah in the, the absolutely worst way possible for him to do it like, there's a um, vulnerability in the server because if i hit it with a hammer it's <laughs> you have to fix this what if somebody came into your business with a hammer and they would do exactly like this there goes. Oh the my God! <laughs> what do you say about Yahoo? That's pretty interesting. Uh, Gmail. I hope, I hope problem. they don't do that anymore because that was a very long time ago. So I'm hoping yeah, they learn their I lesson. Think, I oh. think they don't. But that's actually a, a real problem. Gmail had this problem. Gmail for quite a while. Gmail was in beta version for years and years, and you could only get in if you had an invite from somebody else. Yep. So lots of people got invites right at the start of Gmail, and they started taking over all the good emails, the ones that are just a single name and the ones that are most basic and all of that. Those were all taken over at the time. That's why when you register your Gmail account, now you have to use something really complex or multiple names put together or use dots or whatever to get a unique one that's actually free because many of those have, have been used. And they were created because somebody received an invite, but they never even logged into the account after that. They just blocked the email from further use in the future. 
And when you have the scale of Gmail, when you're working with millions and millions of users, that's a very big problem right there because you have lots of useful names and useful addresses that are completely locked from use. I don't know what currently Gmail is doing about that, what Google is doing about those accounts, but mm -hmm. for quite a while they had those emails locked and they would remain locked for years, basically, even if no use. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of um, bad practices out there. We're going to talk about a very bad practice in the next episode. I'm not going to say any more. Um, <laughs> Another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my okay. God. Um, this one, the, the one from PHP, PHPass. I really struggle to read that that way. Um, mm. So PHPass, um, the way that this was picked up pretty quickly, people realized that there was malicious code inserted into the into the package and that it was sending credentials and tokens and all of that to another server. So this was picked up pretty quickly. And what people realized was that the service that they were sending the data to was supposedly a paid service. So they tried to start sending him with random data so that he would pay more to receive that data. Uh, he now claims that the service was on a free tire somewhere, so people didn't actually rack up his account or something like that. But uh, the users that spotted this tried to start doing that. So, yeah. Good yeah, thing the there. But, yeah. Free tier. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. It's um, um, the, the, yeah. free tire, the free tier on Amazon was actually where he ran the bots from the ones where he received this was a different one. Let me just. Let's see if I can. I know the free tier instances on AWS are going to have um, a lot of throttling uh, to where they'll burst for a, for a minute or however long when you have they call them credits, and then when those run out, then the CPU just drops. So I yeah, you probably wouldn't need to use something else. Okay. Or part and of so the server where he was receiving the data was a Heroku server um, that apparently also has a free tire, and that's what uh, he was using. Uh, but hmm. people spotted that it was one of those and assumed it was a paid account and tried to send him fake data so that it would increase his spending, but it didn't, which is a shame because he really deserved it. Um, <laughs> again, the reputational damage to the package here, it's massive, and I believe some other alternative packages will spring up to provide the same functionality because people will never trust this one again. No, and... I really, I really hate this trend, and I'm not even sure why it's a trend when people try to prove a point in the worst possible way, yeah. and then um, the point isn't proven because nobody cares about the point anymore. They just care about what the person did. That's all that matters, right? The the point's gone. It, it's out there. Like nobody, nobody cares. It's just this person did what they did, and I, I feel like they. They de they've defeated themselves and the point they were trying to prove, and now they're going to have legal trouble. Um, I thought it was bad enough when wasn't it the University of Minnesota, if I remember correctly, was the university yeah. in particular that had this horrible experiment. If you Google that, um, they were literally banned from contributing to the kernel at that point. Um, so if anyone listening isn't aware of what I'm talking about, pretty easy to find. And here we are again. Here we yeah. are again. Claiming to do this for security reasons, to prove a point, to come on, nobody cares about it. At, at this point, you're already in legal problems. If you are not yet, if you haven't received any notification, you will. Don't worry about that. It won't take too long. The, the scope of this, it's not going to go away easily. Right. And again, just claiming that you deleted the data, it doesn't matter. It nope. doesn't matter at no. all that you deleted the data or not. Nobody can verify that. It's absolutely moot point. You shouldn't even be saying that. It it won't make your life easier. And but the the damage here it goes beyond this. And just like the university issue, the damage to the trust that people have on open source and to the security practice of always updating your stuff. I know we rant about this a lot, but. This is really dangerous when you make people starting to doubt both open source and the practice of actually updating your software. People will start doing that and be afraid of, okay, what am I pulling? What if something like this happened to the stuff that I'm updating? That hurts security overall. It's not just this project. It's not just what this guy did. The perception around it is, it really matters. 
it can screw over a company so bad that their reputation, their sales, they have to lay people off. Um, yeah. And and that's really sad because, you know, while it's true that someone else did the damage, then depending on what liability they have, it's like they 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 took in the library, they used it and they released it to their customers. And, and that's what a lot of people are going to focus on. Not that some horrible person decided to poison the library. I mean, yeah, that's important, but they're still going to point the fingers at the developers and the company who didn't ask for this. And they're going to have drama that, you know, could even be a company that is keeping things up to date, following, you know, some of the guidelines that we recommend is doing, you know, a pretty good job overall. They're, they're, you know, there's no perfect job, but let's just say they're doing a great job. And then something like this happens. And then, um, you know, they're just trying to keep their software up to date. Yeah. Exactly. You can be screwed by this if you're doing all the right things, which is so stupid. You should be able to protect yourself from this, but you can't. This type of supply chain attack, like that guy that deliberately poisoned the code on his own libraries. Remember those, the ones that we talked about? Yep. JavaScript libraries, I believe. Same mm -hmm. type of stunt. He wasn't trying to make a security-related point like this guy was. He just changed the code on his own library because he was annoyed that nobody paid him as an open source developer. <laughs> Newsflash right there. Um, if you expect payment, you shouldn't be working as an open source developer because right. only a very tiny mi minority will ever get paid by doing that. Um, but the, the end result is the same. You're damaging people further down the line that... Uh, never contributed to that, never had any relation to that. And again, those are unintended targets that will pay the price for a stand like this. Like you said, if you have a company that's putting out a product that relies on this library, that includes the library on its own code, the users of that uh, that software, they won't complain to this guy. They don't care about this guy. They don't even know who he is. He's, they're going to complain to the company that provided them with the software. Right. Those are the ones that's going to get the complaints and the support tickets and have to look at the code and have to spend hours fixing everything and making sure. And further, those are the ones that have to get the trust back from their own customers because they are the ones who lost it, not this guy. And, and one of the things I've heard other people say, and I agree with this, is that... Um, you know, when it comes to open source, it's great that we can invent our own software, we can write our own software, but the main thing is don't invent your own security libraries. There's security libraries out there that have been audited. They figured this out. If you create your own, you know, you're you're starting from scratch and it's going to be a, a long uphill battle to develop something like that, especially when someone else already has done that. But now... I'm just wondering what the response is going to be. Yes, it could be that people trust open source less. That could be. It could also be that people start forking things, trying to, you know, take things onto themselves to maintain it themselves and patch it themselves, which is great if they are doing a great job of that, but that's super hard to do. And that's going to cause more vulnerabilities than what we have now, if that were to happen. So I feel like, there's really no easy answer here. Obviously, the correct answer is, you know, stopping an a-hole and doing a-hole things to libraries. I mean, that's really what's going to solve this problem. But yeah. you can't tell people not to be a-holes. You know, these people, they want to make a splash. And I, I do kind of get the impression that there's a possibility that this individual just wanted to disrupt the news. Like, they just wanted to have some kind of popularity. I mean, is avatar on the page I'm looking at, which I looked on Twitter is, yeah. is him is Rick from Rick and Morty. That's his profile pic. Okay. So That's here I have a good point. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> only good point. Um, but th this look on, he has a picture of Rick with a very surprised look on his face, like almost like he's just really trying to get some fame. I mean, he has that now. Um, I, I hope, you know, when he's going through court that he, um, you know, yeah. enjoyed it while he enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, just this past week, as we are recording, um, a new vulnerability came out on the other side of the defense for that affects uh, Microsoft Office and Teams and all of that. That lets you basically, if you inject some HTML into some field that accepts, I don't know if it's the login or something like that, if you inject a certain amount of characters 
HTML code, then at the end you can inject code that actually gets run by the by Word or by Teams or whatever. And this made the news. And people started looking at the vulnerability. It was reported. Microsoft came out with a patch that didn't work. Then came back with another one, the usual. But hackers started finding new ways to exploit that, the new places where they could actually get the, the HTML and they inject the code and all of that, which at some point just led them to getting more retweets and likes and all of that on Twitter. And one particularly inspired post that I saw in response to yet another way to inject that code was that nobody cares about your red team exploit tactics anymore. The, the, the vulnerability was found, was reported, it's being fixed. Stop posting this. This only makes the job harder for whoever is trying to work to defend this. Nobody right. cares about yet another factor of attack for something that's already not sure. Coming out with a new way to attack a system, that's interesting. It's another place that we need to defend. But stop posting random crap like this. And I feel that this this guy, it's the same vein. He just wanted to make some fame, like you said, get some fame, get some headlines and all that, and he did. But in the end, it won't make him very happy. I'm trying to remember the name of the Simpsons character that's standing out my mind right now um, with that squeaky voice. I'm a hacker. <laughs> <laughs> I just get that impression because, I mean, it starts in, I mean, how many times if... You know, for those of you that use Facebook, you're just, and I don't use it anymore, but you know, when I was, I'd scroll through the timeline and I would see someone posting under someone else's screen name, usually the the son or daughter of a parent. I hacked your account. No, your parent left the window open. And when they walked away to use the bathroom, you just snuck up to the keyboard and typed something. That's not hacking. But then those individuals, they grow up and then here we go. Uh, we have something like this. Yeah. And now... You know, they're trying to feel like they've proven a point, but now there's damage control being done on a lot of different things. And um, just like you said, IoT, that scares me because I know for sure by now it's already the case that a lot of IoT devices have, you know, poison libraries built into them by now. I, I don't think that's a far stretch because we talk about it could happen. I think it is happening. Um, did we come up with like a I, th I thought we might have had one example where that actually did happen, but if not, I know it will. And that's damage. That needs to be it fixed. It absolutely has already happened. Just the numbers alone, even if the probability is very low that it happens on one specific instance. Come on, the guy claims to have affected 10 million users. He's probably counting downloads. Okay. Of those 10 million downloads, what are the odds that somebody is a developer that's working on IoT? It's 10 million. It's a very large number. Even if the odds are very small, that's still a considerable number that comes out. Even if you're looking at 0.0001%, you're still going to hit some developers that are working on right. that, who yeah. might not have heard about the news until it, the, the firmware was created and uploaded to the device. It's not that far of a stretch to imagine that. And if it wasn't in this specific instance, it was in one of the many others that we already talked about or the ones that we didn't talk about. This has already happened, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now those devices <laughs> will never see an update. The, the, the percentage of IoT devices that are actually supported by the developers and by the, the makers a year after they're released is staggeringly small. If it's 1%, I'd be surprised. People just want to come out with a new release, with a new device, so, and oh, this does this and that, it's amazing, and now we're moving on to the next one, and we're not even going to look back to the code for this one. And that happens. And probably it didn't sell that well, so the company went under. Nobody is even looking at that ever again, but it's still being sold because Amazon has a warehouse still full of that crap. It's still coming out there. It's never being updated, and it has vulnerable code inside. That's just day-to-day -day activity. It happens a lot. Yeah, I just, I just sometimes I do hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I wish I was. I wish I was wrong. I wish that wasn't something that's happening. I wish that was something, something to be concerned about. Um, so, what are? Do you have any opinions on what some developers out there might be able to do to kind of try to safeguard their software, their open source software, from something like this? Google now has a pretty interesting um, 
movement, uh, I don't know, organization, something like that, where they actually try to validate uh, open source projects and give them a stamp of approval. It's basically a way to enforce that when you're pulling that uh, library, it actually matches the, the correct signature. So you can validate that the stuff that you pull is actually correct and hasn't been tampered with, and they do the check themselves. And that's pretty good. The thing is, there are so many libraries and so many stuff out there that your project will not be able to have all the code that it needs coming just from those libraries. You will be pulling stuff that's not covered by that. Um, that's a step, very good step. That's a step in the, the right direction. But we just need to hope that it continues and it covers more and more libraries each day. Because again, anybody can fork code, anybody can create a new library and Google is not coming running. Oh, you create you fork code just now. Let me give you a stamp of approval or something like that. Let me validate your code. That doesn't happen. They look at uh, the most common projects and all of that. But all it takes is for one minor dependency somewhere pulling something that it shouldn't, and it goes out the window. Yeah, it, it's just a really hard thing to do. I think that you know this is something the industry is going to have to look at in some way. Um, yeah. I feel like. There's often a clever person out there that comes up with something and I'm like, why didn't I think of that? That is just so clever. Like, I remember thinking the whole concept of a live CD was clever. We take them for granted now, but mm -hmm. it was when Nopix came out a long time ago, which is the first live CD of a Linux distribution I've ever been made aware of. And there was computers without a hard drive running off the CD. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah they, you could. And then when flash drives got popular, you could flash a flash drive with that. And then you have a Linux OS in your pocket. Now, these obvious, there's obviously a lot of smart people out there. I, I just think as an industry, we have to look at this. This is happening. It's not going to stop. It's only going to get worse. What can we do? to try to have some kind of a safeguard so people know that when they're you know downloading a library, they're actually getting what they think they're getting. Yeah. On the flip side of that, how many companies do you know that are still not doing just the basic, like we talked a couple of episodes, the ones that don't have proper update plans in place, just doing the updates, just the basic stuff you can do security-wise. And many of the, of the companies out there are still not even doing that. Right. Now you want them to change the way that they create software and also look at signatures and change their build processes and all of that. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take too long yeah. of time. But again, it's almost like some of the people that delayed updates, right, and are procrastinating, like we avoided that one. We didn't get that version of PHP pass in our software because we updated two years ago. Look at that. And you know, the way I look at it, if you can't reliably update, you know, install updates, we're really going to have a hard time telling people what to do because that's like the one thing I think we should be able to reasonably rely on with installing the updates and, and patching things. Um, if we're having a hard time there, uh, that's going to be a, a really difficult thing ultimately to try to get through. Yeah, and each time you mention something like that, I always remember the the sysadmins running CentOS seven that are still laughing at the people that updated to eight, yeah. <laughs> and the ones that still have updates for two more years versus the ones that got. <laughs> How aft. often does it happen that the newest version is is no longer supported? The previous one is, and to yeah, you could, you could argue LTS Ubuntu versus non LTS Ubuntu is an example of this, but putting that. Throwing that out there, or uh, throwing that away, um, that's I I don't think that'll happen again. <laughs> I just don't think that'll happen again. But maybe it will. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you out there that aren't aware of it, CentOS seven uh, is still supported. CentOS eight, uh, I believe it was last December that was yeah. end of life, and that was part of the whole um, CentOS changeover that I won't get into. But yeah. Those people on CentOS 7, they're probably feeling pretty good right now. Yep, at least for the other year and a half that they're going to have updates, um, because that's going to end also. But still, they're feeling pretty smug right now. See you guys always up on the new stuff. 
we told you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, you're right. Yeah. And I, I hate the fact that you're right about that in particular, but you're so right. Uh, I just wish that, you know, we could just say, keep your updates up to, or your software up to date and just leave it at that. A lot of times we still can do that. This is a very, very small percentage where this could be a problem. It's just my fear that it's at some point not going to be a small percentage anymore. And then that's a big problem. Yeah, but for the time being, that should still be the, the de facto thing that you do. You should still try to be as updated as possible. And when you see new updates pop up, you should jump to them. Um, even if they don't explicitly tell you that they're fixing a security issue, they might be. Uh, right. I go back to this example. The kernel security team, they release fixes, security fixes on new kernel versions, and they don't put them on the changelog so that they don't point hackers to, to that spot that they just fixed. Um, but new versions will take security fixes, even if that's not mentioned explicitly anywhere. So if you have new versions available of software, it's a safe bet. Even with stuff like this happening, this should not let you, should not make you change your mind about it. Um, right. You should still trust updates. Absolutely. And, and then be annoyed when stuff like this happens, of course, but this shouldn't change your mind about it. I think we should, let me know if you agree on this, because I'm just thinking there's probably a, a good call to action to make sure that in your disaster recovery, disaster prevention plans, that this kind of thing is in there? Like, what would you do if you found out that a library that the developers are, happens to be using is one of these? Then it happens in the same way. What are you going to do as a company to, to fix this? What is your your, pull, your plan to pull that back to revert to another version? I personally feel like that should be a part of it now because I hope I'm wrong, but if it becomes a bigger issue later, you're prepared for it. And I do agree. Like, I, I absolutely don't want to make anybody nervous about updating um the fact is and i really hate to say this but it but it is the truth i'm going to be completely transparent here updates do cause problems i'm not going to say updates are 100 the greatest thing i mean you can install an update and have some kind of bad hardware combination that you know you get a blue screen or a kernel panic or something i've seen it happen it's rare but it does happen as long as you have a testing plan you can get through that but warts and all, even though there are issues with updates, I still stand behind updates. Yeah, completely agree with that. Um, to your point of adding this to the disaster recovery plan, there are two aspects here. If you look at it from the sysadmin perspective, yeah, you should have some contingency in place if one of the libraries in, your, in the software that you're managing is found to be under attack or be, contain malicious code or something like that. You should have something in place there. But given how different each library is and how you have to respond to if it's a Java library, if it's JS, if it's Python, it's it might be out of your hands to actually go ahead and replace it in the application that you're using because it won't pick up the new version because it's looking for that one specifically, the one that's broken. But if you develop software in-house, if you have developers in-house, when you're planning new software, and it's easier to do for new software than for existing one, part of your design plan of the, the architecture plan when you're preparing the application should include the contingency on how to deal with bad libraries that you're going to use. Yep. And it should describe how one can be replaced. Moreover, if possible at all in the language that you're writing in, you shouldn't try to load a specific version. You should load whatever is there next to the application. So that if something like this happens, you can just pull out the old one, replace it with a good one, and the application will pull it. Okay? Because not all languages support this. Some have strongly typed dependencies that you need to, to address. And you, if you're using version 0.1.2.3, it's going to look just for that version. You should try to avoid that. Um, you really should. I, I, there's a couple other tips that, I could... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That, that, that will make your application vulnerable to something different, which is basically the opposite. Is If someone drops a malicious library on top of your application, then the application will pull it. Um, but the, the trade-off here, you really need to consider it. 
in some cases, especially for in-house created software, when you're developing your, with your own team, you should really look into that and see if it's possible to include that when you're preparing your stuff. I completely agree. Another thing that um, may not, I mean, it's, it's relevant, maybe not 100%, but I think that it's a good place to um, insert this. I do feel like if you are developing software, you should be auditing your libraries regularly. And no, I don't mean auditing the code of every library because I would love it if that were possible. I would love it if you had the ability to hire that many people to do that regularly because your company is making that much money to where you can have like thousands of developers just to audit code. That's not really what I'm saying. There's some simple things that you can do that are not that challenging, which aren't gonna really cover the entire, all the bases. But one example could be, um, you know, repositories when it comes to Debian, Ubuntu, CentOS that you might have added to your Linux servers to give you some sort of software that's not in the repositories anyway. Um, a lot of companies will use something like Status Cake. There's a number of these where mm -hmm. they have a main website, you know, Acme is the business and their website is acme.com. They have a probably a Status Cake alert that if acme.com is down, they get emails. So that way, if the website's not responding, they know about it. You could just point status cake and things like that right to the URLs to the to repositories, you know? And and because not everyone's looking at, you know, apt update and the errors that come up. I mean, mm -hmm. I hope you are. But if the repository goes down, you know that because you get an alert and that's a big problem. If that repository is abandoned, you really shouldn't trust the software there. And it's not that hard. You can't. It's not a 100% guarantee that it's going to help you. Maybe 10%, but it's so easy to do just to add those in there. Um, just making, even just randomly checking a GitHub page for the library that you're using to make sure that there's been recent commits. I've seen people trust software that haven't seen commits in you know over five years. That makes me really nervous. Um, you can look at that. There's probably a way I'm assuming in Git just to find out when the last um, commit was made, and you could probably throw that in a script. There's some things you could do there, but then to your point, you're, you're, we're going to need more than just that. Those are very low-level things you can do. But when it comes to library poisoning, that's not going to help you at all um, because you know uh, someone who's poisoning a library, they want that to be available. It's not going to 404 because they want you to download it. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we have to kind of, like you were saying, add that to our plans. Make sure we have a way to at least have some kind of idea what's going on or just an understanding of what we would do about it if this was to happen to us and, you know, like a contingency plan just to figure out what to do. At the very least, uh, create a news alert for every library that you pull into a project. At least you'll be up to date on news around it. And if something like this comes up, this was in the news everywhere, at least you'd be aware of the problem. You can also look at the change log, but that doesn't always work because sometimes a change log can be so massive and contains so many, you know, lines of code that's different that it's just not plausible to go through it all. But some libraries just get one-off security updates regularly, and it's not that hard to look at what was changed. If you have a some kind of knowledge, you can take a look at that. So at least you're auditing something, even though you're not going to audit the entire thing. I mean, who's going to audit tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of line of code? Oh, yeah. No one. Yeah. But if it's, if it's a simple change, I mean, you get a firmware update. We're already doing this, right? Your server gets a firmware update. What's changed? Oh, it's adding a new option in the BIOS to um, have multicolor logos. I don't care about that. I'm just not going to update that one. But security update, oh, yeah, I definitely want that one because that's going to patch something. So. Um, now take a look at that. Just, just you know, have a look around, and maybe this is something we could tackle more in a later episode to kind of talk more about how to protect ourselves better. Yeah, absolutely. Today, with this was just more an awareness episode yep. around uh, yet another creative way that people find to to attack repositories and libraries and all of that. This is part of supply chain attacks that we've mentioned several times before, um, and it was just. Uh, good thinking outside the box for the guy to come up with this way to attack it. It's not novel, like you mentioned with the, the Yahoo accounts, the, the email accounts. I had never seen it used in this context before, but again, it's the same thing as attacking the email account directly. Um, but yeah, this was more to let you know that stuff like this can happen and you should yeah. be aware of stuff like this when you're pulling libraries. 
nobody is expecting you to reinvent the wheel. If you need some functionality, you're not expected to recreate OpenSSL from scratch if you need encryption in your application. Um, but if you do pull OpenSSL, do keep up with the news and the vulnerabilities for it because it will affect your application in the end. And you're the one that's going to be impacted by it. I would also say that these, or actually, before I say that, I'll say that's one of my favorite things about this podcast because we talk about the things that can happen. And I feel like that's raising awareness. So people are thinking more about you know, their username and password. Or I mean, I meant to say password policy, which is important, right? But there's certain things everyone focuses on the most, but we're we're educating people like, but there's also these things that people are actually doing. And it's not like we discovered a thing that could conceivably happen. No, here's an article of something that did happen and will happen again. Now you're aware of this and we get the discussion going. I think that's a very important point. And another thing that I would recommend is when these news stories happen, um, I really do feel like you should let your management know because your management may not be as tech savvy and probably aren't as tech savvy as the people that are directly involved with the development. And then what we, what we don't want is a situation where this happens and then you're, you're fired for, for something you had nothing to do with, right? None of us want to be in this situation. So it's not like, yeah, we're, we're affected by this, which you should absolutely tell your manager if you are affected by something. But in your weekly call, just be on top of it. I found this article this concerns me. This could be something possibly that might be a factor in the future. I want to make sure that we're aware of the possibility. So you're having the conversation about it. So that way, unfortunately, if it does happen, then you've already kind of helped educate the people around you that it's not as simple as, you know, because some people might say bad developer, bad developer. Well, it's not their fault. They didn't, they're not the one that developed this library. They didn't create the PHP pass or whatever. Um, you've got to let people uh, know. You stop there. I almost, <laughs> said <it. laughs> almost said it, but yeah. We all we went through all the episodes without actually missing that one. Of course, I'm I, going to be the one to mess that up. But <laughs> I guess I'll summarize everything I just said in my rant with communication is good. Yeah, absolutely is, and yep. we've made that point in previous episodes because we, it always boils down to that. It's either educating users or just being aware of issues or being aware of security news altogether. Yep. Um, if you're doing anything related to IT at this point, with the current state of events, you should be aware of the, the security news around it. This will just keep happening more and more. And bookmark these articles of all these crazy things that happen to these companies and just save them as, as a list because it's very useful and like we said in a previous episode, you can even turn these um, bookmarks over to someone doing, you know, security training for your company to have real examples of real things, which will really get the point across. So, so please bookmark these, save them. They're good examples that you could use in the future. Absolutely. And we've rented for long enough about yep. this. So <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. It was a pleasure yet again, be yep. part of this podcast and until the next one. Thanks. Yep. See you again soon. Bye.